Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, everyone. Gwen Maxi here. You know how much we love to share great audio work with you whether it's on this podcast, our website, or at public events. We believe that great stories make our lives richer and more meaningful. Now, we are a little shop trying to do big things, and it would mean the world to us if you could help out with a contribution of any size to our mid-year fundraising campaign. We have tons of great premiums and incentives for you, and everyone who donates will be entered to win passes to the Third Coast Filmless Festival October 19th and 20th in Chicago. Of course, the biggest incentive of all, we hope you'll agree, are the audio stories we curate and cultivate. In that spirit, I hope you'll consider supporting us. Just go to thirdcoastfestival.org. And thank you. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. There's a place out east of Dallas where southern breezes blow, where the sunsets are lovely red and giant post oaks grow. Both sides of my family is from Portrait. And you're a, you're a cowboy. Yes, yes, that's what all the cows balling. We're in the cow business. And I, I don't think I've ever met a cowboy. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and sonic lone stars that shine on us from all over the world. On the air, the web, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. People began to leave. Businesses left, and of course Walmart moved in. That's killed more towns than a bunch of Germans could kill, you know. We were all poor, but we didn't know it was poor because everybody was poor. Texas is a big state made up of hundreds of small towns. And small towns, by nature, are hard scrabble. Things chug along nicely, then a manufacturer moves out. Jobs disappear, people leave, businesses close, more people leave. You know the drill. Without jobs, these hamlets are in danger of drying up and blowing away like Texas tumbleweeds. Today, we hear about two such struggling towns through the beautiful but sometimes mournful voices of the people who remain. Stay tuned. All my life, I've felt this sadness, sort of, that the town that that I grew up in was really kind of dying in some ways. Looking at a map of Texas, in the northeastern corner of the state, there is a tiny town called Poetry. Population? Hard to say. According to the Texas State Historical Association, in 1990, quote, more than 600 people were said to live there, unquote. Still, poetry caught the attention of Danish producer Pike Malinowski, who is himself a poet. His curiosity about the town and culture, as both a foreigner and a poet, could not be suppressed. So he went to poetry to figure out what was at the heart of this town with such an unexpected name and how such a fragile speck of a spot ekes out an existence. What he returned with and what we're about to share with you is a gentle, rambling ride through the dusty town of Poetry, Texas. A little girl went crying, poor Trey, poor Trey, she had lost her dog. And someone thought she was saying poetry and thought it was so cute they named it. 
Even on the weather, on the news, if there's a storm, you know, they they call it poetry. We got stars. We've got time. We were kind of known as the poetry boys. There's about six or seven of us. And we all hung together and still today. Poetry's getting old. They're starting to die off. It's difficult to know where poetry starts and where poetry stops now. Back in the day, it was well-defined. I found poetry on Google. I came across a picture of a water tower with the word poetry on it. Poetry, Texas. I'm a third-generation poet. My grandfather was a poet, my mother is a poet, and I've also published books of poetry in my native language, Danish. I've been surrounded by poetry since childhood, and so the temptation to go to poetry and meet the people there was too great to resist. It's real, and it's a metaphor. I've never been to Texas, but now I'm here, and I've rented a car. Um, <clears throat> just trying to program this GPS. Select destination. I have a GPS and a question. What is poetry? Street address. Texas. Texas? Yes. Maybe it's about finding the shortest way to get to a point. Shortest time. P. O. E. Poetry, Texas. The poet is a radio. He translates the world in his inner tubes, Jack Spicer once said. Two thousand people have been killed over the past three days. NPR's Dorinosaur Heidi Nelson says hundreds of others have been wounded in demonstrations demanding an end to... First thing I notice is that the roads in poetry sound like radio stations. FM 986, FM 1565. The German word for poetry is Dichtung, which means to condense. The F and M stands for farm to market. Bringing things from farm to market, that's what the roads were made for. You have arrived. The GPS brings me to the gas station. This is the center, the heart of poetry. Two pumps pumping gas into the cars. A little convenience store with a cafeteria in the back. This is where my investigation begins. I'm going to sit on a bench outside the store and talk to people. What is poetry? What I call poetry and what the other people call poetry is two different, about four different things. Don Strickland is in his mid-70s. He's known as the mayor of poetry. As far as I'm concerned, this is downtown poetry right here. He lives right across from the gas station. Poetry moved here from over at uh, Turner's Point, which is a cemetery right down. If you go down 1565, there's a cemetery down on the right. And that was Turner's Point. And then they moved over here and this became poetry. Poetry is not really a town. It's a lot of fields with cows on them, a bunch of houses along a road with a gas station in the middle, three churches and a school. But poetry is expanding. City folks are moving out and commuting to Dallas, which is an hour west. But if people have moved in around us, they call all the way over to 538 poetry, you know, and... Down here, what we call the bottoms, they call poetry. Uh, Everyone wants to live in poetry. Bachelor Hill, Bushy Hill, they all call poetry. Back over here, Whitehead, they call that poetry now. So, you know, I have no idea. Don was born and raised in poetry. It was a very different place back then. We were all poor, but we didn't know it was poor because everybody was poor. One time you knew you was poor when you got to go to town and drive down one of those rich neighborhoods. Then you knew you was poor. But we didn't care. We, I bet we had more fun than they did. 
eating a mini a frog leg on every Friday night after we get through combining. If poetry was really a town and he was really a mayor, I think he would be a good mayor. <laughs> but they didn't mess with the poultry boys. The poultry boys went to town now. We'd all been scooping that grain all day long. We was lean and mean. So, I mean, we didn't cause any trouble. We'd never gotten fights or anything. Nobody had messed with us either. They'd say, here comes the poultry boys. <laughs> what is poetry? The Greek word for poetry, poesis, literally means to make. The poet in ancient Greece was a maker. One of the people I meet outside the store is Rick Rice. What is poetry to me? He lives alone in a trailer with his dog. Just a lot of hard work. A lot of hard working people. He has cancer and the doctor told him he had six months to live. A lot of hard working people. You can see that just driving up and down the road. The cattle, the bells, the hay sitting everywhere. He came out of the store with a pack of cigarettes in his hands. It's just a lot of hard working people trying to make an honest dime. They ain't gonna make a dollar anymore. Those days are gone. I wonder if anyone ever recorded this man's voice. And I shiver with the thought that this might be the last time anyone does. Hard working people. That's what you're looking at in poetry. People want to know what hard work is. Come spend a day in poetry. For a traveler, there's nowhere to sleep in poetry. So I retire to a motel a little south of there. Turns out a freight train runs right through the backyard. During the night I have a dream about a house. The house only has windows, no walls. It's a glass house. I live in this house and I'm a fool. Everyone can see right through me. Houses in poetry are often symbolic, like in dreams. They reflect the nature of the poet or the dreamer. This is a really nice place over here. As you can tell with the fence, the way they've got their fence. and uh... Robert Weed is the pastor in Poetry Baptist Church. He's 45 and he likes medieval swords and airplanes. He's taking me for a drive to look at some poetry houses. Everybody has fences. Because they're worried about people coming onto the land. Or... I think when people start building their fences like this, what, what they're really saying is, uh, this is my property. I don't want anybody just walking up to my house. His father led music in Baptist churches, and his two brothers are also pastors. Now, this is where the drop-off is toward the bottom. <clears throat> I'll take you. We get down to the bottoms, a dry creek that marks one of the edges of poetry. Like I say, they just consider that to be the bottoms because of the flooding. And um, you, can put, you can put some horses or cows out there, but that's about the only thing you can do. that You really can't even grow. Hey, is this poetry? Uh, this is this is about the farthest extent of poetry that you could get to here. And uh, once you get on the other side of poetry, there's just there's nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> poetry is the art of substantiating shadows and of lending existence to nothing. A poet once said. We turn around just before we fall off the edge of poetry. I have an appointment with Margaret Royce. She's written a book about poetry. Hello there. Hi. Hey. 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 Hi. Hey, nice to meet you. Hi. Nice Hi. to meet you. Hello, so Margaret. In, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Have Thank a seat. You. Would you Thank like you. a cup of coffee nice or? Uh, sure. Okay. That'd be great. She's had an operation, so she's living with her daughter and grandchildren. I go to visit them on their ranch. A real ranch with cows and horses and wide fields. I was always interested in 
the history of poetry. The book is about 40 pages, stapled, and it has historical photos of poetry. It had a hotel, and that was where on the cattle drives, they would stop there and leave their cattle. They called it the Cowboy Hotel. And just, you know, things like that, it just got me real interested in it. So I started, back in the 70s, I started digging. The book starts when the white people settled in poetry. I asked Margaret about their earlier history. Were there any Indians when you grew up here? No, no, there were no Indians at all. I am a descendant of a Cherokee Indian. She was born the year before the Trail of Tears. But her family run sometime during the night on the march from Georgia to Oklahoma. And uh, Indians during that time were not thought well of. I never could understand why. The Indians knew how to do a lot of things. And if the white man would listen to them, they'd they'd learned a little bit. (laughs) While I talk to Margaret, her daughter Rita prepares lunch. And before I know it, I'm the guest of honor at a table set with salads and potatoes and pork roast, all from their own farm. Bo, the oldest son, says a prayer. Bo, would you pray? My father just uh, thank you for the food, Father. Thank you for Pac Man and it will be here. And just uh, thank you for what you do, Lord. And you will pray. Amen. 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 After lunch, Bo takes me out in the fields. I don't see the cows anywhere. I'll call them up here in a minute. His grandfather taught him how to call the cows. Down there right now, but once I start calling them, they'll... uh... How do you call them? Is that cow language? Yeah, pretty much. That's a come and get some feed language right there. So you can see them start walking this way. Poetry is what gets lost in translation, a poet once said. Be able to pick it up okay? That's great. They're answering. Yep. <laughs> what is poetry? Seems like it's a constant struggle between the old and the new. The old timers and the newcomers. <laughs> truth or dare? Uh, truth? Over in Poetry Christian School, the first graders are learning about Thanksgiving. They're all dressed up as Indians and pilgrims. I'm curious to hear what they've learned. What do you know about Indians? <coughs> I know. I know. I do. They hunt for deer. They hunt for buffaloes. And they had bow and arrows. All the girl Indians do a lot of work. Hey, hey, you want to know what does the Indian chief look like? He has a lot of feathers down his back and all that. <laughs> the more feathers they have, the more important they are. And who were the pilgrims? They sailed on the Mayflower. It took a wee long time for the Mayflower to get to the new land since there were storms. People died. People prayed. I would say a little bit got shocked by lightning. They didn't have any band-aids if they got scratched. Then they finally got there. Do you think you have the story in your mind now? Well, when the first pilgrim saw an his name was Squanto, and then he helped them teach the kids how to make corn with fish. And then they had Thanksgiving. The first one ever. The big bird is a turkey. Turkeys are fast and they can only fly for a short amount of time. It's all about love. <laughs> Why? Thanksgiving is always supposed to be love for God. Thanksgiving is about celebrating God, everything of what God has done for you. He gave us our hearts, he gave us the power to eat and drink, and gave us our taste, and he gave us the power to walk, and he has made all the trees and land and the world. He loved us so much, he gave his one and only son to die on the cross. 
A dark cloud rolls in over the school, like red roses and blue violets. Rain in poetry is a cliché, but now it rains. There are no Indians left in poetry. But I've heard that there are still cowboys. Several people have mentioned one to me called Rooster. I find him in a barn close to the school. Rooster. Yes, sir. I'm Pike. Pike? Yes. Dale Bennett. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. I've heard a lot about you. Uh-oh. From dif different people. <laughs> that, that might not be good. I don't oh. know. Uh, it was all good. <laughs> it's dark in the barn as I slip in, but I can make out a good-natured, weathered face under a white cowboy hat. You came that far to see about poetry. Yep. <laughs> Both sides of my family is from poetry. And, and you're a, you're a cowboy. Yes, yes, that's what all the cows balling. We're in the cow business. And I, I don't think I've ever met a cowboy. Really? Yeah, we, uh, I grew up, you know, we grew up rodeoing and had some cows, and uh, that's now that's all we do. You know, instead of going to football games and all that, I'd rather, rather be feeding cows. So could you just describe what you do? In the spring, you, you gather the cattle and you work the calves. You know, a lot of roping and branding and, you know, sleep on the ground. And, and uh, it's just a lot of fun, you know. And we've cowboyed from uh, all over, I mean, almost coast to coast and from Canada to Mexico. And what I always liked about it, it's kind of like a honeymoon. You, you know, you go and they're glad to see you and the hospitality's great and the eating's good. And, uh, you know, it'll take a week or it could take a month to get all the cows worked. And then, uh, you know, by the time the new wear's off, the honeymoon's gone, well, it's time you go on home or go back to another ranch. You know, I never wanted to do all the tractor driving and the farming. I wasn't much on the farming. I'm a little more interested in the cows. What have poetry taught you? What have you learned from, from doing what you're doing here? I don't know. I'd have to give it some thought. But probably, I mean, that your word be worth something. You know, growing up here as a kid, I mean, your word was everything. You wanted to grow up to, to be respected like a lot of those old-timers was, you know. You, you, you try to always be a man of your word, and, uh, you know, next thing you know, that gets around a small community like Portree, and, and uh, you know, I think what goes around comes around. A lot of people might not agree with that, but, you know, I, I think that's kind of how that whole thing works. That sounds about right. Margaret, who wrote the book about poetry, has introduced me to Kathy and Rick Wilson. Hello. Hey, this is my mom, hey. Betty. They have a small cottage in a field where I can stay. My daughter, Sari. I'm slowly becoming known around poetry. Kathy is cooking as we enter. All right. Hi, kids. She's a mild, cheerful woman with wavy hair down to her knees. <laughs> okay. All right. Wonderful. There is a little house on the prairie feeling in the Wilson's home. <laughs> Kathy had their first child when she was 20, and they now have five grandchildren. Wow, what a nice little cabin here. It's my little getaway for me and the grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> so we come out here to read stories and stuff like that. So. Wow, beautiful. <laughs> she writes poetry to teach them about the land and the people okay. who came before them. A little fridge, there's a few things to drink in there. Wow, this is great. Thank you so much for letting me stay here. You're welcome. Across the road from their house, there's a gravel pit. It used to be a nice piece of land. They were using it to raise cows on, but it had beautiful ponds that were filled with black bass, uh, weeping willows. Now it's a huge hole in the ground. It's been hard to watch. So I wrote this little poem, and I, I titled it Poetry to Plano. Plano is a town just north of Dallas, a kind of a high-end community. Anyway... There's a place out east of Dallas where southern breezes blow, 
where the sunsets are lovely red and giant post oaks grow. The scent of cedar fills the air and kids run barefoot down the lane, a little place called poetry where for years we've staked our claim. There's a booming place just north of Dallas, Plano is its name. They say it's a real nice place to live, at least that's what they claim. But the land is old prairie land, hard and black as it can be, clay that swells and cracks apart, not the sand of poetry. A hundred years the family's been here, raised our kids upon the farm, sat by the fireplace in winter, tried to keep the family warm, swam the pond in summertime when all the work was done. They worked hard to keep this land through freezing cold and burning sun. But they're hauling poetry to Plano, one truck at a time. To build you a foundation, they took the sand from under mine. They took the topsoil to plant your turf, and they burned the post oaks down. They took poetry from the country, truck by truck, took it to town. It's hard for you to read that poem, huh? Yeah. I see it slipping away and that's hard to watch. I said Wednesday night, I just don't think that poetry will ever experience revival. Another man of his words is Pastor Robert Wheat. I'm just not sure that poetry wants revival. Over in Poetry Baptist Church, the congregation has gathered to hear him preach about the need for reformation. And the reason I say that is because we as Americans hold on to so many things. There's about 70 people in the little wooden roadside church. If you were just to walk through your house and realize that you hold on to things in your house, you hold on to things in your life. You hold on to things in your relationship. And you hold these things as though they are valuable, and yet you exclaim, God, bless me. God will not bless those who are disobedient to him. I know sometimes I stand up there and it is really, it's really kind of eye-opening. Uh, I don't mind telling you the vast percentage, the vast percentage of people that come into this church, they will come in on Sunday morning with all of their baggage, wrestling with their kids, arguing with their spouses, struggling with emotions, struggling with bitterness, struggling with anger and hostility. They'll come into the church, put a smile on, sit in the pew, sing a couple of the songs, listen to the preacher, maybe doze a little bit, and then they'll go right back into the arguing and the bitterness and the anger and hostility. It's almost as if this one hour of being here has no influence on their life at all. And they've done it this way for 150 years here in poetry. And so we are to be the ones who carry the mantle of the good of poetry on into the future, not ever knowing that what we are carrying is satanic and demonic and has nothing to do with God. The problem, though, is change. Nobody likes the word change. I don't even like the word change. I don't like the word change because it's uncomfortable. It disturbs people to change. That's kind of where Poetry Baptist Church is. Fairly comfortable, but still in many sense, somewhat sleepy and waiting, sleeping and waiting. Sunday afternoon, a little sleepy and waiting, I walk across a field. Poetry is bathed in brilliant moisture. An old tractor, half buried in the high grass, reminds me of a poem by William Carlos Williams. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow. 
glazed in rainwater beside the white chickens. Williams said that a poem must be real, not realism, but reality itself. Once upon a time, so much depended upon this red tractor, rusting in the fields of poetry. What is poetry? Maybe it's just a way of looking at the world, a way of being in the world. Like a rusty tractor, exposed to the elements. Well, my name is Danny Davis, and I'm a worship leader at a church. And um, I live in poetry. I do a lot of songwriting in poetry. You want to do it now? Sure. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Those big city lights might be shining bright. They ain't shining out here. There's a whippoorwill whistling somewhere deep in the night. And his song is sweet and it's clear. We've got stars We've got time Like a heart that's never been broken Like a wave that keeps on rolling Underneath the big blue ocean Like a vow that never has to be spoken This is poetry It's poetry in motion. That's it. Poetry, Texas was produced by Pike Malinowski for Falling Tree Productions and BBC Radio 4. The original music was composed and performed for the documentary by Gerald Menke. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. To hear more of Pike's wonderful work, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. And while you're there, send us some poetry, especially about radio. Free verse, haikus, limericks, and odes can all be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. And now, back to the map. A little farther north and west of Poetry, you'll find Wellington, Texas. It's a bigger town, over 2,000, but its size hasn't helped stave off a similar scourge of economic decline. Evidence of the boom and bust cycle can perhaps best be found in the story of a once-grand movie theater in the center of town. Independent producer Catherine Wells was born in Wellington and still thinks of it as her hometown. She returned, mic in hand, and painted this sonic portrait of a scrappy town trying to stay in the saddle. When you enter Wellington, Texas on Highway 83, about 120 miles from Amarillo, one of the first things you'll see is a large billboard above the intersection of the highway and 15th Street. The text of that sign reads, Welcome to Wellington, great past, bright future. The paint is chipped and the colors have faded, and the streets behind, some paved, some dirt, are full of boarded storefronts and abandoned cars. But if you turn left at 15th Street, and then make a right onto East Avenue, three blocks down you will pass the house where I was born. And if you continue for one more block, 
you will see a large green neon marquee attached to a 1928 brick building lit up with the letters R-I-T-Z. This is the Ritz Theater. The story that follows is about that theater and about the town that, although I left as an infant, I still consider in many ways to be my hometown. I know people who say that there are more crazy people in Wellington than per capita than in any other place in the world, and I disagree with that. In Wellington, we have all our crazy people cataloged, so you recognize them when they're walking down the street. You know precisely that a crazy person is coming at you or in the grocery store or whatever, and you can duck over to the produce aisle and avoid it, and I think that's a plus. about Wellington is it doesn't have any chug hole problems. That's City Hall and the Collingsworth County Courthouse. It's right in the middle of Town Square. We're kind of a cowboy town, you know. And they're good people here. Good, hard-working Christian people. They want to do what's right. If it ain't right, they may, may not be with the law, but they'll make it right, you know. Some people think we live kind of in a bubble. But there's not many strangers. We're very Texan. We're very Western. Very religious. All denominations. The Ritz Theater is near the square. Now the newspaper tells you what's playing. There. There's no industry to speak of in Wellington, so it's farming, ranching, and cattle. It's a, a what I would consider an impoverished town, really. A large number actually live below the poverty line there. I think Wellington has all of the perfect elements for a William Faulkner novel because it's really ghostly, all of these prominent southern families that we have, and we really do, but it's so sad because we still all feel so prominent, but there's nothing to be prominent about. And so to Wellington, Texas, population not quite 3,000. I am Bobby Templeton Rhodes. I am the granddaughter of Robert Henry Templeton, who started the Ritz Theater. He was born in Tennessee to a farmer, and he had to get out and grub up stumps and got hit in the shins with them. And he swore up and down as a child and a young man that if he ever got away, he would never do that kind of labor again that he was going to fix himself a place in society that was an honorable place, not stunt place. <laughs> so he had started the Ritz Theater because he said this was something that his children would have the rest of their lives and that it would be a prestigious thing for Wellington and that no other place in this part of the country would have quite as an elite place as the Ritz. It was completed either in 1927 or 8, and it was a very big deal. Hooray for Hollywood. It seemed very grand because it had a balcony. The lobby up there was carpeted. Carpeting wasn't very prevalent in Wellington, <laughs> and we thought that was really something. Say, you're uh, uh, Fred Astaire. Hello. Well, I love the musicals, especially Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, Dick Powell, Henry Ruby Fonda, Keeler. Jane Wyman, Loretta Young, Marilyn Monroe, John Wayne, and Roy Rogers. Presenting in his first appearance, Roy Rogers, the singing cowboy. I fantasize that it would just be wonderful to be a dancer in the musicals and be in a line and kick up your <laughs> they were so elegantly dressed. We tried in somewhat to emulate those people. And I thought people looked and dressed that way somewhere else, not in Wellington. Daddy Temp said, now this is something that will go on and on forever as far as I'm concerned. But he said there'll be a time that it'll probably be slack and everything, but it will come back in great force because he said this is something that only Wellington people have.
Now, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, we were very segregated, very. And rarely did I even get to go up into the balcony because that's where the black people sat. And our restrooms, the black people could not use them, nor could they use the public water fountains, even around the courthouse and in our park. And that was very difficult for them. But they could come to the movie. They just had to sit upstairs. The blacks didn't start going to the movie until uh, late in the 50s, I think. My name is R.L. Honeycutt. I'm a pastor at Victor Temple Full Gospel Church. I was born in Wellington. I'm a retired Army and retired state. My name is Predonia Honeycutt, and R.L.'s parents, they, his dad used to run the picture show up there. And my dad talked to Emmett Clark, and he allowed my daddy to let the blacks come in and uh, see the movies after all of the whites had gone. And then after we, we started integrating a little bit, Everybody started going together, and then someone was to spill a Coke on the second floor on the, in the balcony and uh, knocked it over. It was dark up there, and uh, some of the water ran down on the people below, and then somebody took that wrong, said we was pouring something down there, and then that, that, like, that caused a, lot of, a whole lot of trouble, a lot of confusion. But we got over that, too, and then we started going back. It was very harsh for us. What I mean by us is the black race because we were just like tenant workers, you know, farmers or what have you. And yeah. I, you know what I got out there in my pickup truck? I've got a cotton sack and a pair of knee pads. You ever seen one of those? What they pull cotton with? My Lord. Yeah, I used to pull cotton and started out working when I was like seven years old, me and my brother. You know, you got on your... older people, they were used to bending over. And they put that cotton in there so fast it would pop. I didn't know, you know, even growing up, why we had to go around to the back of the store and all of that. But as I got older, I realized that we just couldn't go in the front of the stores and stuff. But never knew that much about the prejudice until I did get a little older. And I'll tell him, he, the only reason why, he's the only somebody left with a cotton sack because he never really wore one out. He didn't. I didn't do it. I didn't that was not my you know, weather controls agriculture all over the world. The weather controls it. And ain't nothing we can do about it. <laughs> well, my name is Don Reeves. I live here in Wellington, Texas. I'm a retired county extension agent here. I work for a bank in Amarillo now, do cattle inspections. Fifties were pretty good, really. But in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, it just started down, down. You know, fuel got high. Everything a farmer buys is high. Everything he sells doesn't bring nothing. And just, it's got kind of sad, really. Economically, after the war, Wellington was booming. During that time, there was a family on every 80 acres of land in this county. Now, I mean, it doesn't take as long to farm a huge amount of land. So there's no need to have a farmer on every 80 acres. In fact, there is not. There are only big farmers left now. Businesses left, and of course Walmart moved in. That's killed more towns than, than a bunch of Germans could kill, you know. People began to leave one by one, and so the town began to get smaller and smaller. The Ritz just couldn't support them. I was in about the fifth or sixth grade, and an owner came in, and thinking he could make more money, decided he would twin the theater. That was the big thing to do back in the 70s. And then all of a sudden, one weekend, it just didn't open up again. And it was like, well, we're going to stay closed for a little while while we finish our renovations. And it never happened. I remember the last movie that I attended at the Ritz. The Ritz just kind of wound down like, a, like an old clock. It just gradually declined and declined and declined and then just closed. This guy eventually kind of skipped town, so it went all through the 80s and 90s without any repairs made on the roof. A little bit of water and a little bit of sunlight get inside of a building, and before you know it, the whole roof had basically come in. Everything was ruined inside. I get upset going down the Ritz, right in front of the Ritz. That old building that tore up, that just upsets me because it's, it, you know, it's so ugly looking there. And I wish they could hurry and fix it. I mean, even if it's boarded for right now and paint it up or something, you know. 
square Wellington in another 10, 15 years, it's going to look like a good-looking woman with hair from her front teeth gone. I think we're dying. Look at the population. The biggest business in this town is the undertaker. <laughs> if you want to buy land in Wellington, buy it out of the cemetery. <laughs> it's sad, but it's true. And it's uh, sad for me to see how Wellington has deteriorated. We don't have anything open downtown, and uh, I miss it. <laughs> All my life, I've felt this sadness, sort of, that the town that, that I grew up in was really kind of dying in some ways. And, you know, the generation I'm in, everything has already happened. And uh, we were just kind of wedged in, and we, we were following the, the baby boomers who did everything. And the time we got along, oh, yeah, everything used to be good, but now it's all gone to pot. And so it was just kind of this feeling of sadness and, and kind of a longing for something that wasn't there. What else did we have here? We had nothing. I mean, once a year they have the Miss Wellington contest down at the auditorium. Woo-hoo. <laughs> and then there's, don't forget, the Tiny Tot review. It's stupid. <laughs> I mean, it. I mean, it's like a little beauty contest. That's not exactly what I'd call culture. In the twilight glow I see her Blue eyes crying in the rain. There was nothing to do. My name is Peyton Kane, and um, I'm a, I sing and attempt to do other things, but uh, life is pretty stagnant around here. I just always felt stifled. Not, I don't mean stifled like my creativity or anything, but just that I've, I've always been a very outgoing person, and it really bothers me when there's nothing to do. Through the ages, I'll remember her blue eyes crying in the rain. Isn't that lovely? That's all I got. My name is Wes Reeves. I grew up in Wellington. And uh, most people that, that graduate from high school there don't stay there. There's not a good reason why that I haven't moved back to my hometown other than, first of all, I couldn't make a living there probably. And You know, when you grow up in a little isolated place, you want to get away. It's kind of hard to say where I got started, how I got started on this. People like when to Wes the was in junior was high, junior high we he had told us no telling how many times we need to get the Rich Theater put back together. And that was a life deal of his. I mean, that's all he'd think about sometimes. I said, Wes, that old thing's falling in. I'm Catherine Reeves, and I'm a retired elementary school teacher. I taught in Wellington 29 years, and Wes is my youngest son. Wesley had a project. He, he wrote McConnell and asked him to please, you know, restore the building, and McConnell said that was one of the best letters he'd ever gotten for. But he never quit. No. Wesley never quit trying for it. The theater, I always thought the movie theater was just the coolest looking building. And it seemed so underappreciated, you know, that it was just sitting there rotting away and people just drove past it every day and paid no attention to it. So I just had this desire to see it come back. So I just picked the phone up and called the city manager and, and called him and said, hey, can, can I take a stab at this? And, you know, typical Wellington fashion, oh, yeah, why not? Go ahead and see what you can do with it. And I didn't realize how bad it was, but we walked in, and it's like, oh, my God, this is, this is beyond bad. I mean, it was, uh, most of the roof was gone. Everything had rotted and caved in. There were pigeons everywhere, dead animals in there, probably shin deep up to your knees in some places of just debris. And it smelled, and it's like, okay, there's no way. Except for if you looked up, you saw the... Uh, the trusses were still there, and I didn't realize they had steel trusses. And so it had held the walls together, and the trusses were there. And, of course, me being the optimist, I said, hey, the, everything's there. We just need to put the roof back on it, you know. So that's kind of how we got started. But that was about 2001. And we started having dinner theaters in the community building and bake sales and whatnot. Everybody got involved and got interested. They tore the roof plumb off, put a new roof on it gutted it out, took the bat dung out of it, everything, you know. I was determined we were going to get that 
that sign lit again, even before we had the building rehabilitated. We had this beautiful porcelain enamel sign that was just like like new almost, except the neon was all broken and some of the paint was flecked off. So we raised money and got the cart ahead of the horse a little bit and got the marquee and the sign restored and we had a block party. Uh, the very first time I'd ever seen people dance in the streets of Wellington. We had a band and the, the town showed up and we, were, we told them we were going to light that sign. And it was going to be my job, I found out later, to go float, throw the switch. The switch was up on the outside wall because we didn't have the wiring inside yet. So at the appropriate time, uh, I snuck up there and you had to climb over this gaping chasm type deal. And, and it was just, you just wouldn't believe it, you know. I mean, it was like climbing a mountain to get up there and get outside and hide behind there. And the, cr- the crowd counted down, you know, to the countdown. And, and the, the lady that was the MC that night was our former drama teacher, uh, Gay McAllister. And she announced that I was the one up there going to turn the sign on. I thought, why did you say that? Because if something goes wrong, I don't want to be the guy pinned with this, you know. And so they counted it down and uh, threw the switch. And for a split second, nothing happened. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, it's just like everything else in my life. You know, it's, nothing's going to work. And then all of a sudden, I didn't look up, but I heard this roar, you know, which you don't hear crowds roar in your hometown or in Wellington very much. And I thought, it works, you know. And I looked up, and there was this green glow, you know, and it was just the coolest thing. And I, I joked with my wife. I said, you know, I, I was kind of a rotten athlete. I never got to be the quarterback to score the big touchdown. But that night, I got to be the star of the show. I got to throw the switch. But that night is when I heard one of the old-timers say, I feel like Wellington's alive again. It was the number one movie over the weekend, and now's your chance to see Horton Hears a Who. See the number one movie in the country. Right now, it's Horton Hears a Who, tonight at 7 at the Ritz Theater in downtown Wellington. Well, my name's Wilson Lemieux. I've been working here since uh, the theater was opened in this August, and um, I really enjoy working here, and it's a really nice place to be. Of course, the first thing people always want to see is the theater itself. Oh, this is where all the sound and lighting is. Here, there's so many buttons and knobs, it's ridiculous. And uh, now they're showing uh, first-run movies, and uh, they have live performances about uh, once a month. Right, and this door is a star dressing room. And our Sunday concert series are quite good. We have, you know, classical music that we... And and most people have been receptive to it. People are beginning to um, get a little more cultural. Cultured, probably, is what I should say. So we've had things from concert pianists to, you know, operatic tenors or to, you know, chamber music groups to tribute to Patsy Cline and Buddy Holly. Would you like to see the balcony? And it's just not local people. It's everybody comes in. Because this group you're going to see tomorrow, they're supposed to come from all over the planet. People are asking to come here. They're not going out and seeking them, begging them. They're asking to come to Wellington now. No kidding. uh, We're just really, really proud of this place. I mean, Wellington hadn't had anything like this in a long time. Uh, One thing I've learned about life in this part of the world, if the women don't get involved or buy into something, it probably is not going to happen. All of a sudden, there was a guild formed. Little, it became a social thing. It became the society thing to be involved with. Our guild uh, is composed of women. This year, our goal has been to have a very elegant reception for each concert. Absolutely elegant. We refer to them as cultural events. Well, what kind of sandwiches are you going to bring? We bring, you might say, heavy hors d'oeuvres. So if Beta brings her chicken salad and you bring your your pimento cheese and I bring ham. Making cookies. Peanut butter and uh, let's see, white chocolate macadamia. So you're you're welcome to a few of these. When you, I have a lot. <laughs> if you had told me five years ago that we would have the whole theater full of people in Wellington to hear an opera singer, I would have said you were out of your mind. But yet... That has happened three times so far. Do you think this is enough cookies? You're my person. Well, that's plenty of cookies. Is it? It's probably six dozen cookies, but I don't know. You think that's enough? That's plenty, I could put a few more on because I got them. I was going to... Well, you don't need any more cookies. I was going to freeze them for um, return teachers, but y'all eat one if you want. There's plenty over here. I have a million. And, you know, my culture's getting a little better, I think. 
I've, I've listened to things I didn't know had happened. There wouldn't be a fiddle player or a guitar in the bunch, you know. It's just a wonderful thing, and I'm so proud of it. Proud I live long enough to see it happen. And so you do think that's enough, don't That's good, honey. That's plenty. It's brought back sort of a spirit that has been missing in most of my life. You know, I don't know why I'm saying I'm familiar with this, because I don't ever remember a time when people were really optimistic about anything other than the football team or the, the revival at the Baptist church or whatever, you know, but this is different and it's brought back this feeling of we've got something good here, you know, and we've, we might actually survive. Don, I have more cookies. Do you think I should put some? No, more? no, honey, I don't talk about cookies anymore. I have anymore. a million in here, though. I know, we'll eat them up. We'll give them to the needy. Well, I think people are getting a little different attitude on account of the theater. I really think they are. They see a little hope. We're standing next to one another on East Avenue. We're in the Ritz Theater Sunday afternoon at the Ritz. We're listening to Concerto Extraordinaire by a number of artists and composers. Well, this is the first few months of the Ritz uh, revived existence, and it has been well subscribed to and well attended but the shine has begun to fade from the new facility and people now are beginning to vote with their absence in terms of what they want to hear and see done at the Ritz. Uh, I'm Jamie Johnson and I am the uh, president of a civil engineering and surveying company. I think we're beginning to learn just with the last couple of concerts that the classical music genre is one of fairly limited interest in Collinsworth County and in my view we need to have a good representation of regional music which is typically going to be country and western, bluegrass, that sort of thing. People want to hear songs that they know. It's not uncommon for us to have 12 people during the week if they were just a little bit lower in the prices, you know, there'd be a lot more people to go. Because $6 mean a lot, it mean a lot here in, in this little town. I hope the Hispanic people and the black people will come more. But aren't the movies $6? Our uh, population has changed. We've lost a lot of people in the county, and we've had an, uh, Hispanic people come in. And they have a different culture than we do. My name's Mary Thomas. Mary Rummel Thomas. And my family were some of the first families to come and stay here. They just, you know, decided to flop down here. <laughs> they would come and uh, pick cotton. During the piscas, cotton picking time, at midnight, Saturday midnight, they would have Mexican movies. Your acquaintances with the, the rich people, white people would just, you know, be acquaintances, you know, they didn't hang out. Even my daughter, because she's white as snow like you are. And, being raised, you know, with me and my, my parents, whatever, and saying, Mom, I have been in a room full of all white people, and I feel so alone, like it's just me. I said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know, I feel like, well, I'm the only Spanish person here, and they're all white. There'll always be racism. There'll always be until Jesus comes. Don't you think that's going to leave us because Satan is in charge He's the prince of the hell of this world, and, and that's the tool that he uses to keep God's people separated. When I was young, I remember being uh, old, made fun of and whatnot, or uh, bullied kind of and whatnot by the white people, or we say back then, the rich people, and uh, calling you names and whatnot. And I remember thinking, when I grow up, it won't be like this. And it is. Sorry. It is my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. 
to see movies at the theater, you know. It gives people somewhere to go. That's good. It's wonderful. I don't go there as much as I should because there are too many memories there for me. Yeah, and I think about my daddy all the time, and he's been dead 30 years. But there are a lot of things that happen over there that it's hard to forget, you know. Hard to forget. I've heard the Wes Reeves and the guys like that that think, you know, this place is just going to, it's on the verge of, you know, repopulating again. And and I, I honestly hope that he is so right. I would like to think that the Ritz is going to be the beginning that's going to breathe some life back into it. I don't know. I believe that Wellington is going to pull out. I tell people this all the time, but a lot of them don't believe me. It, it might not be in my lifetime, but I believe that they're going to bring something in, something in here that's going to cause it to grow. Because I've been counting on that. I've been living that and breathing that, and I, I just really believe it's going to happen. This is my hometown. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth is marching on. We're all so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for providing Jeremy Camarillo this opportunity in this Wellington, Texas was produced by Catherine Wells for her thesis project at Yale in 2008. This was its broadcast debut. We asked Catherine for an update about Wellington, and she told us the Ritz is still open. In fact, it has bookings into 2014. And Wes Reeves, the guy who was instrumental in restoring the theater, is working on a new project, restoring an old gas station in town. There are even plans to begin construction on a small water park soon. Sound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Maya Goldberg Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation and the Menaki Foundation. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.